Well, again, I'm glad you're here today and uh, trust that you brought your Bibles with you as you came. If not, there is a Bible in the hymn rack in front of you. It is of the same translation that I'm reading from, which is the New American Standard translation of the Holy Scriptures. And today we're looking at a verse of Scripture from the Gospel of Mark, the eighth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, uh, verse uh, 36 through 38. And the title of the message, If You Gain the Whole World. And as we have said before at each of these messages, we're following uh, through the scriptures, picking out verses of scripture that include the word if and using it as a basis for the message. And today we're looking at the passage from Mark chapter 8, verses 36 through 38. And the title of the message is, If You Gain the Whole World. Mark chapter 8 Verse 36 through 38. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you can gain the whole world, what does it profit you? What, what is the benefit? What would you give in exchange? If you could gain the entire world, what would you be willing to give? The Bible says that when God created the first man, as we came to know to be Adam, that he formed him out of the dust of the earth and then blew into his nostrils the breath of life. And that that first man, Adam, became a living soul, a living being, a living human being. And you and I are souls. Every person, including ourselves, born into this world is a living soul. You are not a body. You live in your body. Your soul, which is you, lives in your body. The body that you have is your house. It is where you live. I live in this body. This body is my house. And this body will one day die. It will be put in the ground and it will decay. But you, your soul, made in the image of God, will last for all eternity, long after the world as we know it ceases to exist, you will continue to exist. You will continue to live either in heaven or in hell. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ asked this question. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits his soul? There are three basic ideas that I want to develop and pursue this morning, and you have your outline that you can keep up as we work our way through the message. And the first idea that I want to develop and share with you has to do with your worth as a soul. What is your worth as a soul? What makes you so valuable? What makes your soul worth more than the entire world combined? While, well, there, there are about five different uh, reasons for it uh, that I've printed for you on your outline. And the first one has to do with your design, the way you are made, the way that you are created. God created you. He had, he had a design for you and a plan for you. 
In, in the book of, uh, of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we have, as the Bible begins and opens the first pages of the book of Genesis, telling us how God created everything, including that first man and woman, male and female, and their names were, of course, Adam and Eve. But in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. Well, let me stop right here for a moment and focus your attention for a brief moment on those two words, us and our. Who in the world is us and our? To whom was God speaking? Well, we believe that the word us and our is a reference to the Trinity, that there's only one God. Remember, the Bible teaches there's not many gods, only one God. But God reveals himself to us in three ways as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are all three God. I, don't, I cannot explain it. don't know of anybody who can. If you try to explain it, you may lose your mind. If you try to explain it away, you'll lose your soul. The Bible teaches that there's one God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches, I believe, that before God created anything else, he talked to himself, all three people, all three persons of the Godhead, is referenced in this word, us and our, God and the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three were involved in the creation of the world. And when it came time to create man, then God said to himself, then let us create God in our own, create man in our own image, and in the image of God, let us create man. So he was talking to the other persons of the Godhead, and it goes on in verse 26 to say, And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man. And verse 27, all of these are important. But notice in verse 27, he said, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him. And then it says, male and female created he them. So God created the first man, he created the first woman, and he brought them together in a, what we call a marriage union, and a marriage relationship, again, in our own day and time. Don't mean to be a broken record, but again, it wasn't male and male or female and female. When God created the first human beings, it was male and female, man and woman, and that was the original intent of the union of a man and a woman in what we've come to call marriage or a wedding ceremony or a wedding relationship or a marriage relationship. And so in Genesis 2, 7, it says, God formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into the nostrils the breath of life and man, male and female, became a living being, a living being. One of the finest and perhaps the rarest of all paintings is Raphael's Madonna. Exquisitely beautiful, but why is it so valuable? It is because it is the handiwork of an artist, the Italian artist Raphael, and it is extremely valuable. Not another one in the world like it. You are valuable because God made you. Man was the crowning work of his creation. The God who painted the rainbow, who made the metal and the flowers, who made the vast reaches of space, 
all of those planets, the sun, the moon, the galaxies out there. The God who created all of those things created you. And he designed you to be like him. One of the most beautiful descriptions of creation is recorded in the book of Psalm, chapter 139, verses 13 through 18. I want to read it from the New Living Translation because of its clarity. Psalm 139, 13 through 18. Listen to what the psalmist wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Speaking to the Lord, he wrote, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion and as I was woven together in the darkness of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. So the psalmist describes how he was formed in his mother's womb before he was ever born and breathed life on the face of this earth. A beautiful description. God created you and he designed you the way you are. The second thing that shows the value of the soul is not only because of its design, but because of its demand. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, you have our Lord's warning to Peter about the devils tempting him and trying to devour him. And he said to him, Simon, Simon. Now remember, that was Peter's first name. I think by uh, calling him by his first name, he was reminding him of his old life before he met uh, the Lord Jesus. Uh, And of course, saying it twice, Simon, Simon, was his way of getting his attention. He was directing what he was saying to Simon Peter to him. Simon, look at me. Simon, listen to what I have to say. But then he goes on to say, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, you can't see this in the English language, but the word you, Y-O-U here, is in the plural form, which means that he was not just talking to Simon, but he was talking to all of the disciples, plural, all of you. Simon, Simon. Satan has desired or demanded to sift all of you. Be aware of this. He's going to sift you like wheat. So no matter how expensive a thing may be, if no one wants it, it's not valuable. If you have a painting or or something material, a car or house or whatever it is, it can be very expensive. But if nobody wants it, then it is of no value. And Jesus was warning Simon and the other disciples, you are valuable and Satan wants you. you he, he uses the word in the New American Standard, demands. Now the audacity of Lucifer to say of the Lord, I demand that you, know, that you give me the opportunity to tempt him, but it's not so much a demand. I like the way the King James translates it, desires. Reminds me of in the book of Job that day when Job, uh, when uh, uh, Satan appeared among the angels before the throne of grace. And um, say, the Lord asked him, what have you been doing? And Satan said, I've been going up and down the earth. And he said, well, what do you think about my man Job? 
And uh, Satan accused him, oh, you're protecting him. You've built a shield of protection around him. And, and anybody that would be protected by you would be a fool to not honor you and, and serve you. But you take down that protective shield and he will curse you to your face. And so the Lord allowed Satan to harm him, but not take his life. And uh, so here again, you have Satan warning Simon Peter, but not just Simon Peter. He wanted all of the disciples and he, he demanded, they, I, I want them. Well, can you put a price on, on a soul? Well, Jesus did. Jesus value you so much that he was willing to die for you. Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. How much are you worth? A finger, a hand, an arm, two arms, two legs? The Bible says our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ laid down his own life, his body, his life on the cross of Calvary. He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And he was willing to redeem you not by silver or gold as Peter talks about this in his first epistle. You're not redeemed with silver and gold. Jesus didn't pull out a billfold and start counting out money to give to the devil or to the father or to anybody else for your redemption. Jesus Christ laid down his own life and shed his own precious blood so that you could be forgiven of your sins. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he values you. And he was willing to lay down his life for you. Not only a design and a demand, but its durability. In the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12 and verse 7, the Bible says, The dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Now that doesn't mean that all people are going to be saved and to be in heaven. It just recognizes the fact that God created you, God gave you life, and when it comes time for you to die, your body will return to the ground, your soul will appear before the Lord, and you will either be sent to heaven or to hell. And how long will eternity last? Well, uh, forever. If you want to buy a suit of clothes, you want to know how long your clothes last. If you want to buy a new set of tires for your vehicle, well, you might ask, well, what's the warranty on these tires? How long will they last? How long will the tread last on it? If you buy a house, you want to know its workmanship. Is it good? How long will this house stand? Will it last a long time? Well, how long is your soul going to last? It will last forever. Your soul, you're going to live forever. You will never cease to exist. Your body will deteriorate in the ground, but you're going to exist forever. You're going to be alive forever. You will never die. Your soul will never die. Never die. Well, how long is eternity? It's a long time. I remember this, uh, uh, any, any explanation to try to define eternity is, is futile, but uh, for the lack of a better way of expressing, we've come up with different ways. And, and here's one that I came across, that the earth is 238,855 miles from the moon. Imagine a dove flying from the earth to the moon. It takes the dove 100,000 years to fly from the earth to the moon. When he gets to the moon, he circles around the moon and starts back. But as he circles around the moon, he kind of tilts his wings a little bit and brushes his wing across the surface of the moon and then starts his journey back, which takes him another 100,000 years. 
When that dove has completely worn away the moon by the brush of his wings, then eternity will have only begun. Begun. And that's how long you're going to last. You will live for all eternity. Another way that we put value on it is its development. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 6, 1, let us press on to maturity. Oh, how many times have you heard me try to encourage you to grow and mature in your faith and in your walk with the Lord? What is the potential for something to be developed? Can it be developed? A thing is valuable not only because of what it is, but of what it can become. And God has a plan for each of us. He wants to restore you, not only to what Adam had, but he wants to restore even more to you. The Bible says that we are created in his image. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that all things work together for good to them that love God and that are called according to his purpose. And that we are called and planned by the Lord to be conformed to his image. God wants us to be like his son, the Lord Jesus and that we, you have that development, you have that potential to be of great value and of great, great worth to the Lord. The fifth thing is distinction, distinction. The Bible says in John 10, 16, that they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now the word world here has to do with the lifestyle, the way we behave, and it's usually in reference to a godless lifestyle. And Jesus has said, I'm not of the world that is godless, Neither are my disciples. A thing is rare because, uh, valuable because it's rare. You are a rare individual. Thank God there's not another person like you or me. There's, a not, there's not another you in this world. You're the only you that there will ever be. And you are the most unique person that God ever created. And I'm one of the most unique persons that God ever created. You look at that thumb. There's not another thumb in all the multiple millions of people in the world. Not a one. And you have a thumb that's different. All the fingerprints on your hand are all unique. You are a unique individual. And because of that, you are a very rare and valuable person to the Lord. Gold is valuable because uh, more so than other Minerals, because there's just not that much gold in the world. And so it's rare, it's valuable. Platinum is very rare. Diamonds are valuable more so than other stones because there's so few of them. Supposedly the rarest autograph in the world is that of Christopher Columbus. The rarest stamp is the one, uh, one cent stamp of the British uh, Ghana stamp. It was issued in limited form by the British government in 1856. And as far as it is known, there's not another stamp like it in the entire world. And so because it is so rare, it's valuable. Your soul is a one of a kind. It is the only soul that you have. And if you lose that, you don't get another one. There's not another you in the entire world. You are God's special creation. You are rare, and consequently, you are valuable. But notice the second thing. It is possible for an individual to waste away his soul. Jesus speaks of a man who's losing his soul. What does it profit, he says, if you gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit 
your own soul. Why? Why is that? Because if you could gain the whole world, you couldn't keep it. You can't keep it. You might say, well, that's my house that I'm living in. Or that's my car that I'm driving. Or these are my clothes that I'm wearing. Or this is my money that I have in my pocket or at the bank or in the savings accounts or whatever it may be. You think so? You think it's really yours? Very shortly, listen to me, very shortly, you're going to leave this world. And when it comes time for you to die, you know how much you're going to leave behind? All of it. All of it. You think about the multitudes of people who are billionaires in our country. Donald Trump. Bless his dear heart. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say, okay? <laughs> but according to the internet, I look these things up. Donald Trump, and by his own admission, I'm rich, he says. I'm rich. He has four and a half billion dollars. Four and a half billion dollars. The late Howard Hughes was worth 11 billion. J. Paul Getty, when he died, was worth 2 billion. John D. Rockefeller, when he died, was worth 340 billion dollars. Bill Gates is worth 80 billion. And Warren Buffett is worth 62 billion. Rich. But when they die, they're going to leave every penny behind. Every material thing that they have ever been able to accumulate will be left here. An archaeologist, I am told, opened the tomb of Charlemagne the Great, the great king and ruler of France during the 8th and 9th century. No one had ever been into his tomb since he had died. But when they opened the tomb, they found a lavish throne room. They found Charlemagne's body, the skeleton that was remaining, sitting on the throne. The skeleton had a ring on its finger. A crown was on its head that had slipped down because his body had deteriorated and down to nothing but a skeleton. And therefore, his head could not hold the crown, so it had slipped over his, over his face. It is said that he also had a Bible opened that was laying on his lap and that his bony finger was pointed at a verse of Scripture. Do you know what that verse of scripture was? What shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? If you want to know how wealthy you are, do you want to know how wealthy you are? Add up everything that money cannot buy and death cannot take away from you. And that's how valuable you are. That's how wealthy you are. If you could gain the world, well, what would it profit you? Even if you could gain the whole world, it wouldn't satisfy you. You were made for more than what is in this world. Some people say, well, if I could just have more sex or more drugs or more money or more fun or more fame, or if I had a swimming pool or an automobile or finer clothes, or if I could take a trip somewhere, I would be happy. No, you wouldn't. There are people all over this world who have those things and do those things, but they'll tell you it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. This world fascinates, and then it assassinates. It will kill you. A little child sees a butterfly. She thinks, oh, if I could just catch that beautiful butterfly, and she chases it all over the yard. Finally, the butterfly lights on a, a flower, and she reaches out and grabs it, and she says, I've got it. And she opens her hand and there's just a little smear, a little smear. And that's how it is with the things of this world. When you get them, they just seem to just 
be meaningless in your grip. Three things about how you can waste your soul. And if you were to waste your soul, it is an irreplaceable loss. An irreplaceable loss. Jesus said, what does it profit you if you forfeit, if you give up the right to who you are? If you lose an automobile, you can buy another one. If you lose your house, you can build or buy another one. But if you lose your soul, if you lose your soul, you'll never be able to replace it. Contrary to what some people would like for us to believe, there is no such thing as reincarnation. You'll not come back as another person. The only body that you have is the body that you will have now. You will never change. I heard of a man who came home one day. He had just been married a few weeks. His new bride was crying. He asked, sweetheart, what's wrong? She said, I baked some biscuits and while I was out of the kitchen, the dog got up on the table and ate them. He said, well, sweetheart, don't worry. We can get another dog. Yes, you can replace things, but you cannot replace your soul. It's irreplaceable. It is ir irreversible, irreversible loss. You remember in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a story. Most of the stories that our Lord told, of course, he, he told them, he made them up. This is one I believe, however, that was true. I mean, it, it really happened. And the reason why I believe that is because of all the parables that our Lord told, this is the only one that he gives one of the characters a name. He said there was this man named Lazarus and a rich man. He doesn't name the rich man, but he names the poor man. He said there was this poor man. His name was Lazarus. And he sat every day at the, at the rich man's gate and he begged for money. And the dog would come and lick his sores that was on his body. And then he says the day came when both of them died. The poor man, Lazarus, died because he was a believer in the Lord. The angels came and took him to the bosom of Abraham. To call it the bosom of Abraham was in the Jewish mind the equivalent of being with the Lord because Abraham was the father of their nation. So he went to be with the Lord. On the other hand, the rich man died and he lifted up his eyes in torment. The Bible uses the term Hades. But it was, he was in torment. You see, when you, when you cease to die, you don't see, when you die, you don't cease to exist. You still are in existence and you have feelings. He said, I am tormented in this flame. Tell Lazarus to go dip his finger in water and come and cool my tongue. I'm just tormented in these flames. So he had feeling. He had consciousness. He knew where he was. He could see Abraham and, and, and Lazarus and the people there, again, because it was Hades. And, and he said, uh, Abraham said, oh, we can't do anything about this. There's a great chasm, a great gulf between ourselves and you. Those of us who are over here can't go over there, and those of you who are over there can't come over here. You're in a permanent, fixed position as we are, and there's no interchanging. There's no coming back and forth with each other. And I believe what, among other things that he was teaching in that story, of course, has to do with the permanent location of where you're going to be when you, when you come to die. Now, we'll not all be at Hades. We all, we'll go to heaven or we'll go to hell. And you will be there permanently. You, see, you can be saved right now. In a moment, we're going to give an invitation. And if you've never been saved, if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and as your Savior and repented of your sins, you can be saved today before you leave this building. 
You can have the grace of God. You can have the mercy of God. You can have the forgiveness of God right now if you want it. And you've never had it. But you cannot wait until after you die to experience the grace of God or the mercy of God or the love of God or the forgiveness of God. You cannot stand at the judgment seat of Almighty God and beg for mercy and forgiveness and have your life spared. You cannot wait until then. You must decide now before you die where you're going to spend eternity. And that decision will rest upon what you're going to do with Jesus Christ. Is he going to be your Lord and Savior or not? If not, then you're going to spend eternity in hell if you have accepted him or will accept him, you can spend eternity in heaven. It's no accident that I'm standing here today, folks. It's no accident that you are here. God has brought us together for this moment so that if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, you can do it now. And you can have the peace of mind and heart knowing that when it comes time for you to walk down the valley of the shadow of death, you're going to walk into the ever-loving arms of Almighty God, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can know that now. But you cannot wait until after you die and you stand before the Lord and say, well, I'd really like to go to heaven. It's too late. Once the tree has fallen, it lies. And once the decision is made before you die, there's no reversing it. No reversing it. Notice the third thing in that it is an inexcusable loss. Jesus told another story recorded in the 12th chapter of Luke's gospel about what he called the rich fool. It was this man who was successful. He had accumulated a lot of material things, a wealthy man. He had a bumper crop. His harvest was just abundant. And uh, he didn't have enough room in his barns to store all of his bumper crop. And he said, well, what am I going to do? Oh, I know what I'll do. He said, I'll tear those barns down and I'm going to build bigger barns. And then I'll have room to store all that uh, I've accumulated here. And so he does so. But you know what the Lord said? The Lord called him a fool. He said, you're a fool. Why? Because tonight your soul will be required of you. And then to whom will all of these things that you have spent so much time and energy and effort gathering together, to whom will they belong? You're going to leave it all behind. And it's, it's, just, it's just going to be gone. And you'll have nothing. And if you're not wise enough while you're trying to accumulate and gain all that the world has to offer to not make proper preparation of where you're going to spend eternity, God says you're a fool. You're, you're not a wise person if you think that you're going to get away from all of this free. And so it is inexcusable. Why? Because Jesus died for you and Jesus invites you to be saved. One of the richest men who ever lived was a man by the name of Malcolm Forbes. He was worth $62 billion when he died. He was a rich, macho magazine publisher. He had an ear-to-ear -ear smile and sparkly eyes behind those black-rimmed glasses. Elizabeth Taylor was his girlfriend, and virtually every chairman of every major company on the planet was his buddy. His multi-million dollar parties were envied because he and his guest had such unbridled fun reinforcing the image of a man spending money as fast as he could spend it. But away from the paparazzi, the big top exaggerations, the celebrities behind the broad smile resided a different Malcolm Forbes. The urban charm and the wit faded a little. Instead, there was a hint of discontent in the luckiest of men 
who was envied by everyone because of what he had. Christopher Winans wrote a book about Malcolm Forbes called The Man Who Had Everything. And he tells of how Forbes uh, took a trip to Egypt in 1984 with the uh, team that built his motorcycles. He saw the tomb of King Tut and he seemed to be in a reflective mood. And as they were riding back to the hotel in a shuttle bus, Malcolm Forbes turned to one of his associates and asked with all sincerity, do you think I'll ever be remembered after I die? Forbes is remembered. He is remembered as the man who coined this phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins. Wow. That was the vision of Malcolm Forbes. In fact, that was his ambition. That's why he collected scores of motorcycles. That's why he would buy and pay a million dollars for a Fabergé egg. That's why he owned castles and hot air balloons and countless other toys that he can no longer have access to it because when he died, he left it all, left it all. You can waste away your soul. The third and final thing that I want to share with you is that there's a warfare going on and that warfare is for your soul. The devil wants you, just as he demanded that he be privileged to tempt and to try and to pressure Simon Peter, he desires you and he wants to destroy you. There are three things quickly and the time will be up that Satan deceives. We go back to the book of Genesis, the third chapter at the first temptation that Satan gave to Eve. Oh, God surely hasn't said that you will die. God knows that the moment that you take of this fruit, you're going to become as he is to know the difference between good and wrong and bad. So in Genesis 3.13, it says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? Because she had disobeyed the Lord. She took, of the, she took of the forbidden fruit. God said, do not eat of this fruit. She disobeyed the Lord. Why? Or her explanation was, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. He tricked me into thinking that you were lying to me. See, God does not lie. He cannot lie. He will not lie. He is truth and he only speaks the truth. And if God tells you to do something, he means it. And he means that the consequences will follow as well. And there's no turning back on that either. God's not going to go back on his word. And Eve's explanation was, I was deceived. I was tricked. I was lied to. Over in 2 Corinthians 11:3, 3, the apostle Paul says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. He's still in the deceiving business. And that he's here today. And he's deceiving some of you, thinking that you've got plenty of time to make a decision for Christ. I'll think about this and do it later. And you have no guarantee that you're going to be alive to walk out those doors or these doors here. You have no guarantee that you're going to sleep through this night tonight. You don't know that. We never know from moment to moment whether this will be the last breath that I will take, the last time I'll see you and I'll close my eyes on this earth and on these people. We don't know that. The devil will deceive you into thinking you've got all the time in the world. Just take your time, think about it, and you can do it later. He'll deceive you, trick you into thinking that. Not only that, he devours. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, and the devil is your adversary. He is your enemy. He doesn't love you. He hates you. 
He knows that his end is a doom and, and he's going to spend eternity in hell and be tormented and he doesn't want to be alone. He wants to take you with him. And so he's seeking. He's your adversary. He is your enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The word to devour means to, to, uh, to gulp. So just like you would gulp down a drink and he's just going to eat you up. He's going to devour you. He's going to destroy you. And then, of course, that final thing is that Satan destroys. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. But the devil has come to steal and kill and destroy. That's what he does. An artist painted a picture of a young man playing chess with the devil. And, the, and the, uh, of course, the, the goal was your soul. The devil was playing chess with him so he could get his soul. Satan had outmaneuvered the young boy on the, on the, on the board and, and Satan is playing with, in this portrait with black chessmen. The young man is playing with, with white chessmen. The painting shows Satan with a look of triumph in his eyes. The title of the painting is Checkmate. The young's face, uh, young man's face is ashen. There's a lot of fear and astonishment. His, his hand is hovering over the rook, but he knows that he has no move to make. He's checkmated. He knows he has lost the game and he's lost his soul. I'm told that that painting eventually hangs in an art museum. Several years ago, there was a man by the name of Paul Morphy. Paul Morphy uh, was a, an American chess player, one of the greatest that ever lived. He's considered to have been the greatest chess master of his era and an unofficial world chase, uh, chess champion. He was a chess prodigy. He was called the pride and the sorrow of chess because he had a brief and brilliant chess career, but he retired from the game while he was still young. Bobby Fisher, young man more of our day and time because Paul Morpha uh, lived in the 1800s, 1850 and so forth. But Bobby Fisher lived, I think he passed around uh, 1980 sometimes. He was in, included, uh, uh, Paul uh, Morphy, uh, in his list of one of the greatest uh, chess players of all time. And it is told that when uh, Paul Morphy uh, uh, heard about the painting of this checkmate, he went to see it for himself. He looked at it, he thought about it, he studied it. He took his hand as though he were moving the, the chess pieces on the board himself. He lifted his hand this way and then put it down and then he would do this and he'd do that. And then he thought some more. And then he almost shouted. He said, young man, make that move. And Morphe had figured out a move that the young man would make and win the game against Satan. Well, I don't know very much about chess. I tried it once or twice and felt like checkers were better for me. <laughs> but I know a lot about the Bible. And I believe the Bible. And it says that if you'll trust Jesus, you'll be saved. And if you don't, you won't. And there's no second chance. It's irreversible. And you'll be done. What will it profit when life here is over? Though great worldly wisdom I gain, if seeking knowledge I utterly fail the wisdom of God to obtain, what will it profit when life here is over, though gathering riches and fame, if, if gaining the world I lose my own soul and in heavens unknown is my name? What will it profit when life is over, 
Though earth's farthest corners I see, if going my way and doing my will, I miss what his love has planned for me. What will it profit when life here is over, though earth's fleeting love has been mine, if seeking its gifts, I fail to secure the riches of God's love divine? What will it profit? My soul stop and think. What balance that day will declare? Life's records laid bare will gain turn to loss and leave me at last to despair. If you believe in Jesus today, you'll be saved. If you don't, you won't. What will it profit you if you gain the whole world and forfeit your own soul? Let's bow together. A stunning question, our Lord, that you asked. One that each of us must answer sooner or later. Oh, dear Holy Spirit of God, may we not be so foolish as to turn a deaf ear and a hard heart against your voice and against your convicting power. We know that you will not force yourself upon us you give us the choice to either accept or to reject. Help us to weigh out the end results carefully, knowing that the balance of eternity rests upon what we would do with Jesus. And I pray that today, if there's one here who's never trusted Christ, Holy Spirit of God, may your convicting power be so strong in their hearts and in their lives that they can't help but, but turn to you and yield to you and open their hearts and lives to you and cry out to you for salvation to be saved. And we'll give you the honor and the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Andre's going to lead us as we stand and sing. And if God's Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to your heart, you please come. <clears throat>